everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ghouls in the House. I'm Natalie Lutovsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we're going to be trapped in space still for a while. So we've been doing this thing where for the last several episodes we decided to look at a bunch of movies that in some way, shape, or form are either inspired by, inspired, or just part of the lineage of Alien. And we kind of already did Alien last time. But we had a couple other things left over that uh, one of which was something I've been wanting to get to for a while anyway. And uh, when we watched Planet of the Vampires, this one was one that also came up on everybody's list as one of the movies that clearly inspired Ridley Scott. And it's a movie called Queen of Blood from 1966. She's gorged herself of fresh blood. She's a monster. And as you'll see when we talk about it, we feel that I don't know where they got that idea from, except maybe the eggs, which feels almost more like it's from Aliens than it is from Alien. But if anything, this movie inspired another Dan O'Bannon scripted movie, which is Life Force, which we're also going to talk about from the year of the zombie, 1985, which we'll talk probably a little bit about that, too. Although if you've been a listener all the way back to Doctor of the Dead, I did an episode way, way back on that where we talked about the year of the zombie 1985 but we'll do it now in the context of our own show and talk a little bit about life force and uh its predecessor queen of blood from 1966 and so it's space vampires this time yeah i mean it's always like some version really of like either a space vampire or a space zombie and when we did Planet of the Vampires, it was sort of a combination space vampire, space zombie situation. Yeah, this I is... said in that episode that it really feels like it should have been called Planet of the Zombies. But, yeah. But, oh, and actually I get to cur- to put in something. <laughs> when I posted the episode, which we'd recorded quite a while ago now, I, I can't believe I didn't point out the fact that one of the movies I used to use regularly in my zombie class is mentioned during The Living Dead, my book. And all those lecturing I did about the history of zombies, one of the movies I always referred to was Invisible Invaders from 1959, which clearly inspired Romero's visual style for Night of the Living Dead, and features aliens, invisible aliens that inhabit the bodies of human corpses and manipulate them like puppets, which is Planet of the Vampire. So, and I, and I didn't mention that, and it really threw me that I didn't. So I wanted to like address that here and say, clearly, uh, Mario Bava stole invisible invaders and added black leather to it so dear listeners let me tell you this has been driving him crazy and he needed to tell you this oh yeah i forget <laughs> what the other one was i corrected too uh some about widescreen uh computer screens yeah we were talking about how nobody in science fiction ever foresaw wide screens because like an alien it's a tiny little tv set little meanwhile boxes. in classic star trek they're all sitting on the bridge with a massive widescreen television in front of them so, yeah, some people saw it. It just depended on the context of when that popped up. Sort of, although in Star Trek, they kind of saw it like a big car windshield. So I'm not sure it, like... Yeah, but it's not. I mean, that's the other thing, is that in modern Star Trek, they've yeah. now played in both, I think, the movies, the the, the Kelvin movies. And right. And I think even on Strange New Worlds and some other stuff, they played with the idea that it can be both. But in the old show... As far as I always thought, it was never meant to be a window. It's a screen. Like, mm-hmm. it's showing you an image, but it's not like they're seeing through it. Right. 
But now I think they've played with that, that sometimes the bridge went, no, this is not a Star Trek podcast, so I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> anyway. We're in space, and it's kind of inevitable, I suppose. Strange New Worlds did some pretty horror-y stuff. The Gorn episode That's was, true, they did. was alien, was really alien. They did Chestburster in, in Strange New Worlds. That's right. It See, all, it, it, it all, all comes back in. It all fits. If you haven't seen Strange New Worlds and you're a Star Trek fan, you're missing the single greatest Star Trek that's probably been produced in the last... 20, 25 years, apart from Lower Decks. And uh, the Gorn episode was their homage to Alien, really. They even put it on an ice planet and everything. Great. This is the Star Trek podcast now. Anyway, <laughs> coming up on this episode, we look back at some Next Generation, what we did just watch First Contact. Well, we're not going there. We're not going to go there right now. There are zombies in it. I know. Captain, they've adapted. All right. We're in space. I get it. We're in space. All right. Queen of Blood. Well, that was boring. (laughs) Um, It kind of was, truly. uh, I have a note that, like, it was such an encouraging opening. They used the paintings of John Klein, the abstract art of John Klein, for their opening credits, which also, I think, includes a bit of theremin. For a movie in 66, we also noted right away it from its opening narration about man in space. It was such an old school 50s style Mm -hmm. sci-fi movie being done about 10 years later than that style would have normally been. Yeah. And the only benefit it had was it had some really lush color and the wonderful stylings of longtime character actor. And for all of us, you know, we all have our associations with him. John Saxon, who's pretty much our lead hero in this real early in his career, relatively early in his career around the time he was doing his Bruce Lee movies, but before he would be, for a generation, Nancy's father in Nightmare on Elm Street. And for people my age, you probably remember him as Steve's buddy who becomes a robot on Six Million Dollar Man, or he's in Mitchell. Until he's not. <laughs> um, guys, wasn't John Saxon in this movie? Oh, yeah. Mitchell! But in Queen of Blood, he's one of the astronauts who's uh, going out into space. And then we spend, what, like about 30, 45 minutes of the movie just waiting for them to go to space or to do yeah. something? Yeah, I mean, I, I commented that it, it feels very much at the start, like, for Spaceship to Venus, mm-hmm. where it's like a big chunk of this movie is actually just showing you the hypothetical space, like, agency where it's showing you, oh, this is the technology they would use, and these are the computers, and this is how the ship would be programmed, and this is the type of crew they would have, and this is them going to eat lunch because they all hang out together at the Terrace Cafe at Space Center. It's also like that movie, I can't remember the name now, that they also do a Mystery Science Theater. It has James Olsen from Andromeda Strain in it where they go to the moon. One of the many movies where they show the moon has even two thousand and one. Oh, does that, that. Um, Moon Zero yeah, Two? Yeah, which was a Hammer movie, if I remember right, and also design or Project Moonbase. I can't remember. I know. I think you're right, but well, one well, of those. They both anyway, have moon in them. I don't care enough to even look. So you, you, you look. <laughs> um, but also great color and design, and it's like one of many movies with this idea that the moon would become our way station, right? Which, as we speak. The NASA Artemis program is about to try to start, except they can't get the damn first rocket to launch. So we'll see what happens. That was like a motif. And this is set in 1990. 
We also have a very elderly Basil Rathbone, who, if you read all the back behind the scenes of this movie, was evidently really mad about lunch one day. He's good, though. I mean, everybody in this, I thought, was actually pretty good. Yeah, it's a well-acted movie. Everyone is giving it their all. You have a very young Dennis Hopper, who's not at all Dennis Hopper in this, and who John Saxon says was, like, laughing all the time at how stupid the movie was. But, hey, he took the part in the check, so... Yeah. There's only so far you can take that. And he's got a not a great part, and he gets killed. I mean, basically, as far as a sci-fi premise goes, at the outset, it's pretty solid. You've got this space agency that already has the capacity to do, like, interstellar travel. There's a base on the moon. They do a lot of research. And in the course of their research, figure out that there is finally going to be, as you bring it up, a first contact kind of moment. Some ship from somewhere else is sending out a beacon that they're going to arrive and isn't this going to be great and then they almost arrive and there's some kind of incident and a distress signal gets sent out and they've crashed on a nearby planet but not quite gotten here yet and so the idea is okay rather than prepare to meet them here we're gonna send astronauts there to try to you know, rescue them based on this transmission we've received. And we also, you mentioned at one point, it felt kind of like a student film, at least at the beginning. The movie benefits from quite a few things, including the fact that it reuses special effects footage from not one, but two Russian films. And this was apparently based at least partly on a script from a Russian film. And then they just had all this footage sitting around and Corman's thing was make a movie that can make sense of this stuff. But when you watch the first half in particular, Mm -hmm. it really feels like just long stretches of dialogueless visuals of all the stuff they had from those other movies. Right. And and a lot of Forbidden Planet um, tonalities and stock music and, and sound effects. And it's like. For a long time, we were sitting there saying, like, literally nothing is happening. Yeah. Nothing's going on. This is like a half-hour story from a Twilight Zone episode, but it's bulked up to a feature film. The movie's called Queen of Blood, and for, like, the first 45 minutes, you're, like, more like Queen of Bureaucracy, am I right? (laughs) Like, it's just about process and, like, who gets to be on the ship. I had a note here at one point about halfway through where I said there's so little drama here. I long for the suspense of Planet of the Vampires, (laughs) which, you know, granted, I know there are people that probably uh, disagreed with us last time, but boy, we really didn't enjoy that either. So I have a note that says, where's the queen, damn it? So, yeah, it was like 30, 40 minutes. And the only thing I was thinking of at this point was the classic bit of Bugs Bunny and the rocket screaming as they send him out into space. And and we do get a guy who winds up being sort of abandoned, who they tell him, hey, just hang out and test dirt for a while while we check out this other stuff. And he's like, okay, I'm going to test dirt. Basically, you've got your first ship that goes to meet the other crashed ship that crashed, which also feels very Planet of the Vampires, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And... They themselves get damaged landing because turns out this is not a very welcoming atmosphere that they're landing in. And so they have to send another ship to go meet them. 
uh, including like the guy who's going to get left behind because that ship also can't land but crashes on a moon instead. But there's like enough room to take one escape shuttle to like try to make the jump over to the other planet, but not enough room for both of them to fit in the ship that's already there and not the, not enough fuel to get They add all this drama basically. And right. they, they draw lots and the guys basically, they think being left there to die. And he's just like, I'm an astronaut. This is what I do. And then as soon as he lands, on the other planet, they're like, no, 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 it'll be fine. He's got enough food and air and stuff. Just tell him he's not going to die. It'll be fine. And then there's a sandstorm. And it all culminates in deep hurting. But we don't want to give too much away. You run along, Joel. Push the button, Frank. I am the button. So, like, the drama of him being left behind is, like, this poignant moment for, like, 30 seconds. Where yeah. he's just, like, leaving him there to die and then everyone else is like, have you considered that he could just not die? And he's like, oh, good news. Just, just don't eat too much. You'll be fine. We'll yeah. send another ship back for you. And uh, it takes, I have a note here, it takes about 50 minutes. The movie only runs 81 minutes. So roughly two thirds. 50 minutes in, we finally have the queen open her eyes. So they find her. She's like the remaining member of the supposed alien mission or whatever mm -hmm. this first contact and they find this very creepy green alien woman and there's a long sci-fi tradition of creepy green alien women i just recently started a lost in space rewatch and anybody's a fan of that knows there's the creepy green alien lady turns up a couple times and the witches dr smith um but this one is played by florence marley who has a very fascinating personal story about like leaving the Jewish family, leaving Europe ahead of the Nazis and everything. It's really interesting stuff. She did some like movies about that. And uh, it's worth, worth looking into the life of Florence Marley because there's not much of her here to really get a sense of. She gets no dialogue. And I will give her full credit as being the best thing about this movie. She's the title character. Mm -hmm. And thank God she delivers because... She is instantly creepy, has a smile that makes you really uncomfortable, and they did a really cool, very simple in-camera thing of pointing light at her eyes whenever they wanted to make her look like she was doing her mesmerizing thing, because, of course, that's the other thing, is that I mentioned she's a vampire, an alien vampire, who starts working her way through the crew, uh, kills Dennis Hopper, and then we have our Ash stand-in for this one of a guy who's like, you know... We should try to understand her needs. <laughs> it's like she's sucking everybody dry and killing them. I know she just <laughs> killed a guy, but she doesn't know any better. That's just how they live where she's from. We have a good supply of blood plasma with us. We'll use that to feed her. And if we run out of plasma, Commander? course on the flip side of it they also have the thing where they like immediately upon her waking up try to communicate with her she can't speak english and then they want to start doing tests on her and actually try to come at her with a hypodermic needle which then causes her to like you know re react in shock and fear and they're like she has some puzzling behavior and it's like you're coming at her with a needle and you're weird to her weird alien creatures she just woke up and of course, we're going to find out. Yeah, she's a malevolent, you know, mesmerizing vampire lady. But I'm not also, even sure she's malevolent. It's it's just, just what she does. The doctor you know. who's like, "Hey, this is just who she is," isn't 
wrong. No, that's true. He's not wrong. It's her it's her biological imperative that this is what right. she's right. But it then becomes a situation of what's most important. Mm-hmm. Is it preserving her life, preserving the life of the remaining crew? Is it scientific discovery and all the fame and fortune you're going to get from finding, like, the creepy vampire lady who can literally mesmerize you into standing still while she sucks all the blood out of your body? And, like, the doctor researcher guy is like, this is worth bringing home. This is going to be good. It's insane. Yeah, and everyone else is like, she will literally suck the planet dry. Like, you can't do this. Which, again, there's a reason why we have this neatly paired up. There is, yeah. Very good. And and to that point, she is in fact supposed to be naked, and yet she very clearly is wearing a green bodysuit in a few shots. But then we noticed we were watching, like, is she supposed to be naked? And then they made it clear in a few quick cuts that like she gets like those like the blood markings on her or on her shoulder or something mm-hmm. at one point. It's very clear in the like they cut to close up, she doesn't have anything on, cut to far shot, she's wearing the bodysuit. She's supposed to be naked. And they had no way of accomplishing that in a way that evidently they were comfortable with. And they just thought, ah, green bodysuit, who's going to care? But it's it's so glaringly obvious. Right. But that's the intent. The intent is that she's naked through most of the movie and, uh, and stalking them on the ship. And does, like I said, does a great job of creating the minimal amount of atmosphere I would give this movie credit for is all due to her, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't get much to do. And let's face it. I like John Saxon from my childhood. We all like John Saxon. Saxon's not exactly the most compelling actor. I mean, he's good in what he does, but he's not going to hold the whole film so well. And at this point in his career too, he's just kind of one note. They all are. He's Um, not a charismatic leading man. No. And I mean, he's also one of that class of guys from that time period who had gone bald early, and that's fine. But because of the vanity of Hollywood, had decided to wear, you know, the worst kind of lids for the rest of his career that just looked like they'd been slapped on. He always had that sort of swept across one he wore. And it's just like, ah, you know, it's Saxon again. I also have a note from you that I don't know it's apropos of what, where you... I have a note that says the Bible is all just zombies and mud monsters. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure what we were looking at at that moment. It's because they like in in deciding they'd have like a space funeral for the guy she sucked dry. They're like reading Bible passages and just shooting him out into space, but still keeping her right. like very loosely tied with just like a scarf or something. Like, dude, they're like, it's fine. She's sleeping now. She might even sleep the whole trip. Like, we got blood in reserve. We can just feed her the blood that we brought with us. They actually start planning, like, well, how are we going to keep feeding her? Yeah. And it's like, why do you need to keep feeding her? Throw her out an airlock. This is what we learn in movies like Alien (laughs) that you do. But, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the other interesting thing to me is that her mesmerization abilities only work on men. Yeah. Which is kind of a a sort of an interesting little piece they put in there. I've been noticing more and more, too, how much more aware I am now than I used to be and how much more critical I've become Mm -hmm. of how often various plot elements like that are based on the most simplistic interpretation of the supposed binary 
setup of gender and sexuality right that's absolutely ridiculous and it's like why wouldn't she also be able to mesmerize a woman why wouldn't she be able to mesmerize anybody why is it functioning along these ridiculously arbitrary lines and and yet that's a common thing you know certainly then you're gonna well, see the answer is because they equate the mesmerization with pleasure right and that there's some kind of attraction you may even feel some kind of pleasure from the mesmerization and like god forbid they show a woman mesmerizing another woman with something that seems like it lulls you into a pleasure state whether they didn't want to portray that or they worried about censorship if they did portray that it's hard to say by the way i was recently re-watching uh, star trek the animated series this is a star trek podcast <laughs> ladies and gentlemen I, mean, I gotta keep it on point we are a star trek podcast after all <laughs> we're not we are not and uh i i hit the mud episode they did an episode where mud came back and this time Mud had love potion pills that made basically you eat the pill and then you touch someone and they fall instantly in love with you. And the thing that totally threw me and shocked me this time that I would never have picked up on or been aware of then, which I still also feel sad about that I wouldn't have then, but I wouldn't have. Mm. Uh, but I was so thrown by this time as he very specifically says, if a man gives this pill, touches a man or a woman touches a woman, You'll develop a deep abiding friendship. But if you touch the opposite sex, then it's love. And I'm thinking, this is insane. <laughs> it's so specific. It's like, don't worry, folks. Not going to be anything. And, and I thought, oh, my God. But yeah. So, I mean, the, these are the kind of things you see that ridiculous binary restriction reinforced again and again and like you said maybe for purposes of avoiding other issues but maybe for whatever it i mean is. I'm, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt in a lot of cases to say maybe they just didn't want to buck up against the censors but to be honest it probably i mean it's so roger this corman, is corman. This is, too, yeah so this is know. not like high art by the time we get to the end of course with their desperate need to keep the monster alive they basically managed to the the main characters managed to survive. I'm just going straight to the ending. Yeah, let's do this thing. And uh, they the, did. They went straight to the ending. Why shouldn't we? The big surprise is similar to his appearance in movies like The Time Travelers, which we also see quite a bit from his Mystery Science Theater version. And I grew up with that movie. Forrest J. Ackerman turns up to be the one who's carrying out the really truly creepy and disturbing little tray of jelly eggs that she's apparently made, or like like laid from herself in a way we never want to know mm -hmm. and they're like huh these look interesting let's also take these down to earth and take a look at them and the movie clearly ends with the question mark of well this is not going to end well for anybody and and i can imagine in in a way it's like going back to where we started all this it's like the end of contamination also we're back to jelly eggs and the fact that everybody's doomed and uh, it seems that's where we're heading. One thing I will say that I found at least a little bit interesting in like the last act of this is that they were able to radio ahead and tell the administration everything that had been happening. They weren't stuck in some kind of radio silence. They weren't like trapped without communication. They called home and were like, here's the situation. 
found a nice lady. Turns out she's not so nice. She drinks blood, already killed a guy. We kind of have her sedated, but we're not sure. We may have to push her at an airlock, kind of trying to figure it out. And of course, like administration back home is like, no, 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 you got to bring her home. Just get her here at any cost, you know, got to research this, got to study her. And by the time they get back and we're just down to like our, our pairing, like our, our actual couple that was a couple right. before they started sort of saying, um, well, we got into a bit of a tussle with her, scratched her a little. Turns out she's a hemophiliac and she bled to death very quickly, super dead. But she laid eggs, so we'd like to just land, get off, and blow up the ship. And they're like, no, 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 no. Okay, she's gone, but let's just take these eggs. And like, you don't understand, the ship is full of eggs, eggs everywhere. And if even one of these things is as dangerous as she was. And they're like, yeah, but the eggs. Let me just check in on, and it's like, oh, for Pete's sake. Like, yep. I mean, they've all, they're on the moon, at least at this point. <laughs> I haven't made it to Earth yet, but. Yeah, theoretically, the moon. I think, could or be... did they land on Earth because they had to bypass the moon? I, I can't remember. I can't remember now. I truly can't remember. So if you watch the end of it, feel free to decide. <laughs> Although we're not going to recommend watching it. It's think. not very good. It's 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 only like eighty minutes, and normally, like a movie is like seventy, eighty minutes. You would say, well, it's worth a shot once. I wouldn't even say waste your time even once on this one. It's it's not worth it. Yeah, you can look at a still photo of her smiling and get the same effect, and go, oh, "Yeah, that is kind of creepy." All right, done. Because mm-hmm. there's not a lot to this. it. It I really strongly uh, object to its constant noting as a precursor to Alien, though it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, the smallest of elements, but the thing that it is most definitely is a precursor to Life Force and Dan O'Bannon's script. And also the novel Space Vampire that was written by Colin Wilson, The Space Vampires from 1976, which is where Life Force comes from. And this feels very much like a beginning of that in which like a space mission finds a naked vampire lady out in space and says, let's bring this person home. What could possibly go wrong? And so that's where this comes from. The The connection to Alien, eh. I mean, there's, there's the idea of the crash ship, sort of like the derelict, but not really. There's the crash ship. There's the eggs at the end. There is the scientist on board who knows the danger and is insistent that we're yeah. bringing it back anyway. Right. And the fact that people are getting picked off. I would definitely say that if you're going to go either or, Planet of the Vampires definitely looks like a movie that strongly inspired a lot of the thinking Mm-hmm. both plot-wise and design-wise, behind elements of Alien. But Queen of Blood feels like it did similarly for Life Force. I'd agree. Which is pretty much the only reason it's worth thinking about. I want to hear, sir, a special bulletin from the BBC. It's obvious that tonight, London is on the brink of the worst devastation since the Blitz. From where I'm standing, I can see large areas of the city burning out of control. And thousands of people are now rampaging through the streets here in in a frenzied last effort to avoid the plague. Martial law has been enforced now for three hours, but at the moment it hasn't stemmed what is obviously... Now, Life Force is one we've now seen a couple times. Mm -hmm. Wanted to get around to it eventually. I'm sure many of you listening have seen it. Uh, I don't know how many of you are are fans. It's hard to explain. I wouldn't say I love, love the movie, but I like it a lot. 
but it's also like I like it a lot, but it, unlike some films I equally like as much, I don't necessarily feel the need to revisit it quite as often. Mm -hmm. But it is a good movie to revisit, mainly because it's 47 movies in one movie. It's insane. It is an insane it's, film. The joke I always used to tell is the same joke that everybody tells about their local weather. Like here in Baltimore, the joke is Baltimore weather, but I, it's the joke that changes no matter what city you're from. Right. Where they always say, hey, you know, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. And the joke I always used to tell when I do lectures that included Life Force, which I use regularly in my zombie, uh, like 100 Years of Zombies lecture that I used to do all the time. Because it has some great zombies in it, and it is one of the many movies in 1985 that features zombies. That was the year of the zombie that also included Reanimator and Day of the Dead and Return of the Living Dead. And uh, a couple others whose names are escaping me. But it was quite a run in 85 of zombie stuff. And I always used to say about Life Force, if you don't enjoy the movie, just wait five minutes. It is a movie that I, my first note for our watching at this time is, it's a movie that is obsessed with taking one big swing after another and just seeing what happens. I always forget it's Toby Hooper, but it's Dan O'Bannon. Um, there's a very long and convoluted history to the development and making of this film, which we won't bore people with here. You can look that stuff up. It's an adaptation of a novel, but it's also very different. There are also two different cuts of the film, but the nice part is the version that is currently circulating on streaming that we've seen both times on Shudder is in fact the extended cut, which I would definitely say in this case, that's the one to watch. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of additional stuff on the Churchill the ship that finds the aliens and brings them back, that in the theatrical cut was omitted. Basically, when you watch the theatrical cut, the reason I think a lot of people had a negative reaction to Life Force originally was parts of it don't quite make sense. They literally cut bits that made the plot make sense. And and I mean, and, how often does that happen to yeah. you? It's like, it's a weird thing that studios do. And they're like, well, we got to trim from somewhere, so let's trim from exposition. Yes, and and the thing is, it's also weird in that it's... It's a movie that at times looks kind of almost low budget, but at times it looks like a sprawling blockbuster epic. Yeah. It features John Dykstra post-Star Wars doing some phenomenal effects. It's one of the movies that I feel defines what later became Marvel Comics movie cliche, which is the blue beam shooting up into the sky or down from the sky to be your final third act thing. That's life force there. Every time I see the blue beam... And it opens immediately, the movie opens with beautiful stuff and an instant, you're instantly in a space epic at the beginning of this movie. The sets at the beginning of this film, when they're in that spaceship, yeah. they are absolutely extraordinary. Some of the best spaceship sets I've ever seen. And spaceship meaning like, you could imagine this as a NASA project. Right. Not like, oh, sci-fi future, everything is chrome with blinky right. lights. Well, that's another thing I was going to say is, being from when it is, and we also just watched the um, first documentary on science fiction from the team that brought us the In Search of Darkness movies that we really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. They just put out the first of their sci-fi ones called In Search of Tomorrow that focuses again on the decade of the 80s in science fiction, and... and one of the things that came up in that was the ubiquity of the space shuttle in 80s sci-fi because it became such a design beacon for the future of space travel. And Life Force is one of the movies that showcases a space shuttle design that's very similar to the real one. 
and interiors and functionality that's basically like, no, this is NASA and, and the UK and current, you know, space technology. This is not ridiculous. And they have NASA patches yeah. on their uniform. Like they did if, this in conjunction with NASA. Yeah, I mean, at least to clear it. And it's and it looks real and it looks believable. And they meet the giant, you know, discovery-like Molly Bolt ship in space that also turns out to be a giant bat ship with wings which is awesome there's so much design in this is just so incredibly creepy and, and awesome it's also a lot like v'ger which you know i know, do yeah it's got a v'ger aspect to it has <laughs> become a star trek podcast um, today it's star trek really and uh, but not. basically okay it's impossible to sum up life force it really is and and uh, i did take notes enough to be able to run everybody through this because i used to always joke about it okay granted that was a joke it doesn't change every five minutes it changes roughly every 15 minutes and we counted this i time. checked i checked and it really does actually turn on a dime and become a different plot in film or rather another chapter in a, in a larger plot mm -hmm. roughly every 15 to 20 minutes like almost like clockwork and you could think of it almost like serials like the kind yes. of serials you would see it has that in a feeling. theater at the start of a film every week and it's like these are like 15 minute serials of an ongoing story that they've then stitched together yeah it also is very similar to a couple other things that sci-fi fans, particularly UK sci-fi fans, will definitely get, is that um, it, it feels very much like another version of a Quatermass uh, story, uh, which if you're familiar with Quatermass, Nigel Neal's character, the professor who also is Doctor Who-esque and uh, frequently dealing with ancient aliens, feels very much like Quatermass story. I've also always felt, because it's more familiar to me, that it feels basically like a John Pertwee-era unit Doctor Who story, only without the Doctor. But our Doctor in this is Peter Firth, as um, his name I always forget, and I'm going to look it up right now, which is why you're probably hearing clicking and bopping. But he's Colonel Colin Kane. If you want to write a hero, make it you know the same initials. I was going to say, it's like, it's the same kind of character that got stamped out more recently by Ryan Johnson and Benoit Blanc. Yeah. Which is all, I mean, it's also the alliteration, yeah. right? But it's like a very Benoit Blanc kind of feel. And I love Peter Firth's character in this. He sweeps into the movie with a long coat and turtleneck on, and he's very doctorish. And you also constantly get through the whole movie a bit of a vibe like he always already knows a bit more than what he's asking to find out. Like, a lot of this stuff doesn't really surprise him. Space vampires are invading, sucking everybody's souls out, and turning the world into zombies. And he doesn't look entirely surprised by any of it. And I, I love his character, and I always wanted to see tons of sequels with Colin Kane fighting things and years later when i fell in love with the movie hunt for red october which was a movie my father and i shared and really loved he's in it in the beginning as the character upon whom the film turns at the beginning where they turn from there's a, a beautiful little artful shot where we're on the russian sub and they're speaking all in russian but for our purposes for the film they got to get it so that we're hearing english so they do this bit where he's reading from the Bible about Armageddon and, the, and it cuts and it closes in on him. And just as he hits the word Armageddon and the camera starts pulling back out, he switches from Russian to English. And we know we're just hearing it 
mm-hmm. but he's the one that's the character that they turn it on. And I always loved that it was him because I thought, hey, it's Colin Kane from Life Force. Sia, idu kaktats, blažen, botrus vujuši, ikranjaši adiejdu svaju, i on sabralek na miesta, nazivaje maje pajvrieski armegidon. And the seventh angel poured forth his bowl into the air, and a voice cried out from heaven, saying, It is done. A man with your responsibilities reading about the end of the world. Basically, like I just said, this ship, Space Shuttle-like mission, which is a joint mission uh, through NASA and the UK, and do they mention Russia also? I, can't I don't remember. think so. No, no, I think it's a British-American. British-American. And it's really just a survey ship. They want yeah. to look at the, the tail of Haley's oh, Comet. Comet. Right. That's the other thing, is that this is one of the movies that plays off the then huge pop culture impact of Haley's Comet coming back. Mm-hmm. Like, you got Night of the Comet, you got this. And Haley's Comet is always going to be trouble in these movies. <laughs> and it turns out the Comet is hiding this giant, enormous alien batship thing that contains crystalline coffins filled with naked people. Mostly and, really and it's fill, filled with naked bat people. Also dead bat creatures, or yeah. seemingly dead bat creatures, which is one of their assumed more accurate forms, probably. Because we do find out later from her that they scan their minds to, to change to what they knew they they would want to see. Right. Right. The men on on the thing get uh, completely mesmerized by this one naked lady in, in a crystal coffin played by Matilda May, who did some other things over the years, but will always be remembered as, like, even the Wikipedia page, she's literally just credited as space girl she's the evil vampire at the heart of the entire story but she's just space girl and she spends 99 percent of the movie completely nude evidently was totally fine with it uh and so is an entire generation of young men seeing this movie and probably no small amount of women as well and they're all mesmerized by her like queen of blood mm-hmm. she immediately affects and again though there's the binary thing there she immediately affects only the men, and they make a point of that as well in this, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. Um, that she affects the men. And the men, and because there are male vampires, but we don't see them quite as much, we never get quite the same thing shown about their effect on women, but presumably that's what would also happen. I guess. I mean, the thing is they don't... There's like, there's three space vampires on that ship and two of them basically get wasted they're just kind of these ancillary background characters yeah. who you think get blown up but then also actually jump bodies because at some point we find out they can jump bodies in their spirits yeah. it's like there's a lot that gets worked into here and i feel like the other two are not well utilized not in this all. because it becomes about her i'm mostly mesmerized at like how comfortably she just walks around nude as if she's fully dressed, like no biggie. And like that had to come from the confidence of the actress who like is clearly comfortable with doing this. Like this is not a film that feels exploitative in its nudity. It's like it is and it isn't right. Like they're trying to go for that queen of blood naked vampire but rather than paint her green they just have like a conventionally attractive lady 
who is nude from head to toe. And they can do what they couldn't have done in the 60s, maybe, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you've got sort of that element of it, and it, it makes it very sort of, like, scandalous or titillating, or it makes it seem even more just sort of... Um, the word i'm looking for it's like women are often shown to be like in, in a non-vampire sense to be like blood-sucking gold-digging harpy type women I mean, by showing a lot of skin it's like there's something that, salacious about yeah, it you can argue that both of these movies also play on like negative stereotypes of a conniving female character yeah like a jezebel right yeah. So, I mean, there's that aspect of it, and I feel like, could they have done this movie without her being naked the whole time? Well, sure like, they could Yeah, sure they could have. Yeah. I also feel like, on the other hand, there is something that's very empowering about it, because there is no indication that she ever feels like, oh, I have to cover myself up in order to, like, exist in this no, world. No, we never get that. You never get that from her. And, like, at some point, she does, like, borrow some clothes. By mm. borrow, I mean sucks the life out of a woman, which you don't see happening on screen. You just get an interview later with two teenage boys in the park. And, the, yeah, you know, right. they were excited because they thought they were going to see two ladies, like, getting intimate in the park. And then it became clear that, like, that was not the intimacy they were looking for. So she can suck the life force out of women. They just don't show it on camera, which right. is a bit, you know, a bit backwards, I think, even in the 80s. So she does take that woman's clothes. But really, I think purely from a standpoint of realizing now she's on the lamb and she has to kind of blend a little better. And so she's going to stick out if she's right. naked, but she's not doing it because she's trying to like cover her shame in any way so i kind of dig it from that standpoint but i also feel like they still kind of linger a little too long and revel a little too much in her nudity as a plot point so eh, i get go either way it's a little both back to the um 15 minutes at a time thing <laughs> So, yeah, no, no, no. Much like the movie Life Force, we're going to get all no, over the place with but this. No, what I was going to say was like that opening space scene mm -hmm. is the first 15 minutes or so, a little shorter. When we get back to Earth, I mentioned that not only is it like Doctor Who, almost everybody in this movie is from Doctor Who. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you will recognize all the doctors in the, probably in that, particularly in that one scene where I think she goes nuts or is it the, the first corpse that starts to feed on people almost everybody in that room there's john woodnut there's a bunch of other people are all from john uh, pertwee and tom baker era uh, doctor who and the puppet corpses are amazing they're not convincing like and a lot of people have often pointed to the the puppety animatronic corpses in this because like when they they suck people dry they literally leave them as like desiccated corpses who are not necessarily dead because they can themselves begin to feed on people in a vampire-like way 
and uh, bring themselves back, but they're not good at holding on to the energy in the way the aliens can. And we're talking 85 zombies. It's like they look very Return of the Living Dead. Very much Return of the Living Dead. There's one on a table that's like a lot like the female corpse. The yes. pain of being dead. Yes, yes. And of course, a lot of this, it's the same time. It's Dan O'Bannon. It's 1985. Mm-hmm. A lot of the same work being done. I would what I would argue is that even the stuff people think is laughable in the context of the movie, which I also feel Life Force works well because it feels like a giant, huge comic book, is that the corpses don't look real, but they look totally good and convincing to me for the story I'm being told. Mm -hmm. I don't need a realistic looking corpse to watch a movie about a naked space vampire, you know, attacking England. Just give me something that fits the context of what we're watching. And the effects in this are fantastic. And and a great mix of animatronic work and visual work from Dykstra. I love the shot of the huge bat creature on the steps of the church toward the end. It's like some beautiful, beautiful stuff. And it's like, that's another 15 minutes is when everything starts to go to hell when they bring her back. Then there's 15 minutes later, we get a flashback where Steve Railsback is sort of our American lead. He's uh, Colonel Carlson. Everybody's got to see. He's the American that survived, but as we later find out, is psychically connected to her and the one that she sort of picked to be like sort of a consort and conduit for, for Renfield. Yeah, exactly. And he's great at doing that. And some people might remember that probably one of his biggest claims to fame was playing Charles Manson. Uh, I think it was a TV movie. And he also was on X Files, a bunch of stuff. He's great in this as a guy who always seems like he's just to one side of going insane which is what he usually does and also arguably if a space vampire has a psychic hold right on your brain and is continually trying to communicate with you and kind of bring yep. you to her or repel you from her just depending on the situation it's like yeah you'd be just to one side or the other of crazy i am the feminine in your mind Carlson. There's also a fantastic character in Dr. Hans Falada, played by Frank Finlay, who's sort of like our Van Helsing, yeah. who provides some of the exposition that is truly wonderful, that grounds a lot of the space vampire stuff into our mythology. The notion that these creatures are actually the source of a lot of the things we thought we knew about vampires. My belief that the vampires of legend came from creatures such as these, perhaps even from these very creatures. I know it sounds incredible. Do you hear me, Carlson? It's more than a belief, Falada. It's true. And he knows things. He kind of knows them out of nowhere, like, you know, how to get them with a a steel stake or whatever the metal was. There's some now. kind of Indiana Jones about yeah. it too. Yeah. And then he eventually succumbs himself in a really nice, creepy scene. You know, it's like, what, what would happen? What would happen if Van Helsing became a vampire? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of, that's also, there's another 15 minute segment is the, what really happened on the Churchill segment. Like it takes a little ways into the movie and we go back to space to find out what was the thing that really happened that spun everything out of control and left Railsback as the only one left. Mm-hmm. And it takes, I think this is great. 
Some movies play this game and it doesn't work. I think it's great that they hold a lot of this back only to reveal toward the end of the movie that he's the one who was responsible for a lot of the stuff that happened on the Churchill that led to allowing her and the others to get here. And again, like you say, he's the Renfield, really. Yeah. That gave them access to Earth. And I think it's a beautifully done thing. This, again, I've heard a lot of people over the years complain that life force is all over the place. I don't think it is. I think it's that it's telling a lot of different stories and they're all kind of weaving in and out like a DNA strand. And it doesn't always work, but it works pretty damn well most of the time. And then we get these flashbacks that keep filling in. By the way, didn't you ever wonder what happened on the Churchill? Here's that part. And then they go, okay, now we see what happened there. And it's it's great. And then um, I mentioned there's a little shy of another 15-minute break is when we start getting into the big apocalypse thing where all hell breaks loose. Like, really, the movie does kind of turn on a dime in the third act where there are zombies everywhere in London when everything goes crazy. You're forgetting, though, before all hell breaks loose in the apocalypse, we have a little visit to an insane asylum. And if this is going to be a Star Trek podcast here. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I almost forgot. Patrick Stewart shows up. <laughs> and that and that is, right? That's another thing about Life Force is it does hit a lot of the beats of Bram Stoker's novel, including the sanitarium. Yes. And he's like, well, would he be like Seward, I guess? I can't remember. I think it's Seward, Dr. Seward. Some like... But Stuart is Dr. Armstrong. And and his whole thing is, well, they have this woman who made... It, it dovetails in with that thing of, like, what happened to Matilda May's character. She took on this body other person's body. And, yeah. They get this information through Railsback's psychic connection that she was in a car with a guy and, like, you know, seducing him. And it all leads to the sanitarium. And probably one of the, if I was going to cut one thing from this movie, like I said, you can only cut one thing. Right. I would cut down the sanitarium sequence to nearly nothing. The Patrick Stewart part is fine. And, and again, anybody that knows Patrick Stewart from all the Star Trek and other stuff knows that as wonderful an actor as he is, there's this certain class of Shakespearean actor where screaming and yelling in pain always looks like they're trying so hard to hit the back rows of the theater and mm -hmm. it's not realistic at all. He does a lot of his typical screaming in this and they think that she's in him, which leads to one of the things that everybody always loves talking about in interviews, which is he has a sort of kind of kiss with Steve Railsback and in, in this because she's in there sort of. Um, but there's this weird part where they're trying to get information out of the woman who's there and figure out that she's a masochist, so she wants to be hit. And at that point, Kane sits down and is like, oh, I don't mind. Go ahead, I'll watch. And I'm thinking, this is... now things are officially weird. And I say that about life force. I know, it's it's a very uncomfortable sequence. It's uncomfortable, sequence. yeah. And it's interesting that like out of all of like the strange things that have happened up to that point, including seeing people get their entire like essence sucked out of their body and then seeing them rehydrate themselves by sucking someone else's essence and then watching them explode into dust if they don't feed every certain number of hours. Mm -hmm. It's like all this is going on and it's insane and it's disturbing and it's creepy. And then you get to this and you're like this, if it were made today, it would be the sequence that I would think, oh, they put that in there because 
one of the people that funded the film would only do it if they like kind of gave a nod to his kink and Which still may be true. it still might be true it's like that's it there's no reason for it in the plot in a movie that feels but i insist is not right as random a collection of elements as some people think it is mm-hmm. that is entirely random and unnecessary and it's the one time in the movie where i'm like if you like hit the button to skip that scene that's fine because it doesn't add anything you don't miss anything no and it's meaningless it's bizarre basically so the only thing you learn is that the space vampire lady's not in her body anymore right but back to the back to the carnage which <laughs> is there's some epic beautiful wonderful uh zombie apocalypse stuff at the end but it also like i said the marvel movies owe a great deal to movies like this and their third acts ghostbusters from a year before also clearly may have influenced parts of it. it's sort of that element of the the like points of light flying through the sky and everything going haywire and spirits everywhere and um there's also an element that's similar even to the biggest high budget blockbusters of today like the marvel movies my friend andy always used to say he didn't like to and i think you've pointed out too is that no matter how much money they spend on these movies and i still love a lot of them the end sequences always seem to still be taking place on like two or three blocks of a fake street that they're extending via cgi and matte right but you can tell it's on two or three blocks of a fake street and remember, you saw Superman 2 for the first time, and I was showing you, it's like, here's the big showdown with, you know, Zod and all that. And they're on two or three blocks at, like, whatever the UK studio was, and you could see there's a flat behind them that looks like the rest of the street. It hasn't changed. Right. It just looks a little better. But it's still like that. And this has that, too. But, of course, for a movie like this, you're going to expect that. It's two or three blocks in London and the church. Yeah. But you get the impression that everyone is dying. And the scene of all the bodies laying on the steps of the church and in the church, you don't have to be religious or Christian. It's a powerful sequence. You mentioned that it reminded you of like Queen of the Damned also. Yeah, because there's this point in at least the, the film adaptation of Queen of the Damned, which I could talk about all day, every day. We it's, haven't done it yet, have we? I don't think so. All we, right, we'll have to do that. We'll have to do that. But there's a, a bit where she is sort of like saying hey like like take a look at your kingdom Mm -hmm. and like holding her hand out and it's just this palatial estate with piles of bodies Mm -hmm. everywhere just bodies and it feels so much like that of like this carnage and also the fact that there are still within this apocalypse little like moments where it's punctuated by comedy Mm -hmm. because we still have our like dynamic duo trying to figure this out and they're flying the helicopter in and they get diverted from london to this military outpost and they go in and they're waiting to talk to the (laughs) prime minister yeah and the prime minister is all like sweaty and like just need my secretary for a minute and they're like uh and like they look in they realize he's sucking the life force out of the secretary and rather than say or do anything the two of them are like oh back to the helicopter they just (laughs) walk right back out and like get in the helicopter go and like as they're taking off everyone's turning and it's just like they're jumping on the helicopter yeah and they just have this moment of like 
turn this bird around. We've got to find this. somebody else to, to talk to about it. It also has my, one of my favorite visuals in the whole movie, which is going to be the centerpiece of our banner for this episode, which is when she creates like the blood version of herself that appears to them in the helicopter. It's awesome, awesome visual stuff. And then just goes blurp. And then blurp and then disappear. <laughs> yeah. And that's our last 15 minutes. So in other words, so here's quick again. So life force begins. There's 15 minutes in space. Another 15 minutes and they come back to Earth and start figuring things out. Next 15 minutes, a flashback where we get filled in on rails back. Next 15 minutes, she's out and about and they start the investigation with the bodies and Patrick Stewart. Next 15 minutes is what really happened on the Churchill. A little shy of the ending is the setup for the ending with uh, heading into the apocalypse. And then the final 15 minutes is at the church that kind of kicks off where Cain confronts Falado when we find out Falado's become one of them and gets his la like last speech. Great shot of him in front of a burning London outside the windows and everything. Picks up a magic sword. It's like, damn, even though I'm talking about it, damn, this is a great looking movie. Why aren't more people watching Life Force? And a lot of Dracula references. Um, and there's also, <laughs> I also made a note here that these shots are so packed with stuff while he's driving through. There's fire stunts and at one point he said there's a man with a trident. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. It jumped up a notch. It did, didn't it? Yeah, I stabbed a man in the heart. I saw that. Brick killed a guy. Did you throw a trident? Yeah, there were horses and a man on fire, and I killed a guy with a trident. Brick, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You should find yourself a safe house or a relative close by. Lay low for a while, because you're probably wanted for murder. The vampire bat at the church door. And uh, around this point, you mentioned... I think we kind of get the idea, too, that by using Haley's Comet as their cloak, it suggests, and also knowing that they are the source of what we think of as vampires, mm -hmm. they have been here before. They will be here again. Because even though we defeat them, the really creepy part is the movie just ends with them being defeated and just flying back off into space with no uh, suggestion that they're stopped. Just yeah. that, all right, we'll be back later. Nice talking with you. And then the credits just start rolling. And you said that the impression you got is that you could believe that maybe they have come to Earth before at times that we now think of as the plague, a rapture, uh, the flood, different different biblical moments or great moments of disease and death mm -hmm. may have always been them coming back on a cycle. Yeah, and, if you want to get biblical with it, it yeah. you could kind of look at it that way. And I really, I like stories that try to take something fantastical and imply that it could be the source of like real world legend it's i mean you talk about marvel it's one of the things i do like that they kind of roll into them when they start talking about asgard and, yeah. and the gods there and that like it's always been them and they're the source of mm -hmm. what these legends are about the gods and there's something kind of cool about that, um, about having, like, an explanation as to, like, where would they even have come up with the idea of a vampire? Because that is, it's kind of insane, like, that for a period of time, yeah. too, that there were people who probably 
I mean, I say for a period of time. There are plenty of people, I'm sure, that still believe that they're a real thing. By the way, as we're recording this, literally today, I saw on Twitter a story that's going around, a lot of people sharing photos of it, where they've uncovered uh, skeletons in Poland, I think it was, that they believe were buried, a whole bunch of them, that they believe were buried under the belief that they might come back as vampires, and they were all buried with sickles across their necks. If they tried to get up, they would decapitate themselves. And there are all these photos of these skeletons laying in the ground with sickles right I across mean, spoiler alert, they didn't get back up. And as well, as a lot of people are pointing out, don't remove the sickle, don't take them out of the ground just in case. But, you know, in the era we're living in, we're, we're going to keep doing the thing. Like every day you read an article like, you know, we just found something in a core of ice in Antarctica that shouldn't be there, but is. And now we're going to thaw it out. And it's like, maybe don't. It's like there's a lot of stuff where they're like, oh, hey, look, it's this thing that we've been looking for but haven't been able to find. And people went to a lot of trouble to make sure that it was unfindable, but we found it. It's like, no. And now I'm going to twist off the cap. <laughs> it's oh, like, my God. Oh, all right. Yeah, don't do not do that. It's, a, it's really, it's the ongoing theme of all these episodes is just don't touch the thing. Don't touch the thing. I don't know. I can't think of what else I would say about Life Force. It's a weird situation. It's not one I would say I, I revisit a lot. It's certainly by no means a perfect piece of work. It's very variable. But I think that overall, it's just so awesome in what it tries to do. And when it hits, it really hits well. And uh, I feel like there's also this extra little enticing angle that if you're a Doctor Who fan or a British science fiction fan... There are elements to it that feel instantly familiar, even though it's not any of those that you can watch and go, oh, it's, it's all, it feels very, I've, I've always said it feels very much to me like it's an episode in a Colin Kane series that we never got. He clearly has been doing a lot and will be doing a lot. And this is the only time we get to see him. And, uh, and it's disappointing because I like to see that turtleneck back in something else. Well, maybe we can convince somebody to do like a, Colin Kane prequel because they're always doing prequels these days. Yeah. So like why not go back and see where he started? There's something very X Filesy yeah. about it, Kolchak. It's like the yes. the person who already is not skeptical of the thing that should make you skeptical. No. And just kind of dives in. That's the thing that I like about him too, is there are a few times I think one of the scenes with Rails back too and then the office where he kinda of, I can't remember the exact line, but he says something to the effect of it's like I'm not gonna disbelieve anything you tell me. Just tell me, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, we're, we're all friends here. Tell me what you need to tell me. And it's like, it's, a, and he never does. He doesn't scoff at anything. There's never any of that, like really tedious crap where somebody says, oh, come on. I mean, other characters might do that, but he doesn't. Right. And actually very few characters in this whole movie really ever react that way. Well, it's hard not to see what's happening around yeah. you. You can't. You can't really deny what you're seeing. <laughs> There's also the scene, by the way, um, what is it, his name? Aubrey Morris, who's a long-standing uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick repertory player. Uh, a lot of people probably remember him from A Clockwork Orange, but... There's the scene where he's Sir Percy and they bring him in to see the thing when they like go down to the basement and one of them just goes poof and like bursts into dust right in front of him. It's like, yeah, it's kind of hard to discount this as a vampire when you see it actually dust itself in front of you and you go oh, okay that's what's happening <laughs> and it's like yeah i mean you sort of talk about how well i don't know if it's 
it's as revisitable or certainly it has flaws and this and that. And it's, I think it's one of those movies where you can't help but admire how many big swings they're taking because it is absolutely insane one as a concept. E- one might even say it's batshit insane. Oh, one might. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Latovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLitovsky, that's NBLit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Queen of Blood, 1966, and Life Force, 1985. Which is totally alien to this planet and our life form. Totally dangerous. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.apbpublishing.com. I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotchy, scotch, scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm -mm.